0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Well With, All. Well With All believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Well With All's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Well With All.
1: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
2: when you hear the word incubator, it may not bring to mind images of innovative food businesses developing tasty treats in a Dorchester warehouse. But that's exactly what Commonwealth Kitchen is headquarters for local culinary startups. It's an encore of our conversation with Commonwealth Kitchen's executive director and two members of the incubator community. Later in the show, this past June, 20-year-old Gabriella Lowell was walking across the street when she was struck and killed by a driver who took his eyes off the road to glance down at his phone. Another tragedy motivating advocates to push for a bill requiring hands-free driving.
1: I lost my daughter within one second of him looking at his phone. One second matters. A half a second matters. And it's something that needs to stop.
2: Coming up on New Year's Partying, we're reprising our conversation with Gabriella's mother, Allison Lowell, who spoke with us in July to make sure drivers understand the deadly consequences of distracted driving. But first, in August of 2017, I was joined in studio by Jen Fagel, Executive Director of Commonwealth Kitchen in Dorchester, Cassandria Campbell, owner of Fresh Food Generation, and Celeste Croxon-Tate, owner of Lindigo Spice. This is the tastiest conversation I'll be having in a while. Um, I had the privilege of stopping by looking at your workspace, and it just smells so good once you hit the door. There's no question that there's lots of good food going on in the space and really interesting different businesses, Jen. Let's give a broad scope of what's happening in the kitchen.
3: Sure. Mm. So so first of all, we're a nonprofit and our work is really about how do you help start and grow great small food companies. And so we provide this amazing shared kitchen. We have 50 different businesses that work in our kitchens. Almost 75% are owned by women and people of color and they are everything. Wholesalers, retailers, food trucks, caterers. They make jam and cookies and ice cream and you find their products at Whole Foods and at Roach Brothers and Star Market and just all over the place. It's an amazing amalgam of businesses and cultures and people coming together under one roof. How do they find their way to you? That's a great question. (laughs) Partly we're the only game in town, so that makes it life easy. We're the only shared kitchen in the city of Boston. Everybody has a dream of amazing recipe that they have that they want to start a business. And we provide this amazing place where people can come and they can learn how to create, how to scale, how to get their permit, their license, have a kitchen to work in. So it's kind of an amazing
2: playground for people who want to start a food company. So I meant it when I said, when you hear innovation, the way we've been using it, it's mostly applied in this way and incubation in the same sentence to tech companies. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of incubating tech companies around Boston where they sit cheek by jowl with each other and one business is doing this techie thing and another one's doing (laughs) another thing. But you never hear it applied to food. Um, Is this a model that has been used around the country and other places? I mean, why, why, how did this come to be?
3: Yeah. So Mm -hmm. we, we
2: say all the time that there is
3: innovation happening all over the city, including in our amazing neighborhood of Dorchester, and that the work that's happening and the businesses that are coming out of our facility are doing amazing innovation work in the food space. So when you think about how they are operating their business and thinking about what the retail market looks like and how do you get to customers and thinking about where online sales and online marketing affects how business is changing and how clean labels and simple products and farm-to-table and all of those things. How do you, as a small business, create a company that's sustainable? And so... There's enormous innovation that's happening in our facility, and certainly our work is part of a trend that you see around the country of people starting these kind of shared kitchens because it is so expensive to start a kitchen on your own. It's just, think about the permits and the licensing and all the specialty equipment. Most of these companies could never do it on their own, and so you see around the country as the world is moving to more local food, clean labels, transparent products. As that's happening, more and more of these kind of shared kitchens are popping up all over. I would say the difference in what we are doing is we have an incredibly deep mission focus around minority women, immigrant, low-income people. We are in a very low income neighborhood of Dorchester and our focus is on asset building and wealth creation. Because our feeling is the best way out of poverty is you give somebody an opportunity to create assets and wealth. And guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna invest back in their neighborhood. They're gonna put jobs in the neighborhood. They're gonna support the little leagues and all of the other things. And so we really believe importantly in that part of the model as well as we're creating community. And so what you'll hear from all the businesses that work in our facility is it's about who's in the kitchen and how they connect to each other how they have the opportunity to connect to people like you that give their, their businesses a voice. And so there is a unique piece to what we're doing that I don't know anybody else around the
2: country doing. That's my guest, Jen Fagel. She's executive director of Commonwealth Kitchen in Dorchester. Let me move over to Cassandra Campbell, owner of Fresh Food Generation. Now, Cassandra, this has been a really central experience for you working out of the Commonwealth Kitchen. Give us a bit of how you got started there and and where you are
0: now in your food journey, as we say. So Fresh Food Generation is a farm-to-plate food truck, cafe, and catering business. We started about three years ago with a food truck, and we really wanted to improve access to food in low-income neighborhoods, specifically Dorchester. I grew up there and wanted to see better food options that you could grab that was quick and on the go. That being said, when you become a food truck owner, the first thing you need is a commercial kitchen space. Commonwealth Kitchen happened to be opening <laughs> around the same time. Um, Jen is laughing because <laughs> I actually followed her around for a while. <laughs> okay. As Persistence. She was yeah. Persistence yeah. as she was talking about what Commonwealth Kitchen would be. And I got really lucky because it is an amazing space to be in, and there is a way to get there. So
2: right. also, so once you were in the kitchen and doing your thing, what, what hit you all at once about what you didn't know and what you came to know in that space?
0: So my business partner and I, neither of us had a culinary background. So we were really starting from square one. We were, you know, running with this vision of improving food access, but we had to make the food. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. Okay.
2: But you felt confident about that piece that you could make the food. You just needed the access. Is that where you were coming from?
0: We felt confident that there should be healthier food options in Dorchester Mm -hmm. and that Commonwealth Kitchen was the right place to start that, given the support systems that we had there. So we were able to work with the executive chef, who would constantly say, "Hey, there's a faster way to do that," <laughs> and and sort of you know teach us um, basic skills and have that patience and understanding of knowing we weren't coming from a culinary background. We were also and still to this date able to receive business development advice, whether it's getting permits and license from the city or. Putting together a financial statement,
2: and that is huge because a lot of us might be sitting around saying, "I can whip up a little sauce in my kitchen, but then what?" <laughs> <You're> right? Yes. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> you know. We practice making um, jerk sauce because we serve jerk <laughs> chicken. But, you know, when you're doing it for a thousand people at a time, it's a very different process. (laughs) 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 And having help with that process, how to do it in an efficient, fast way that you don't lose the strength of the recipe or the quality of the product. It's really important to have. Um, help. And, and Commonwealth Kitchen was that place for us.
2: Great. That's Cassandra Campbell. She's owner of Fresh Food Generation. Moving over now to Celeste Croxon-Tate, owner of Lindigo Spice. And she's got some intriguing spice <laughs> chutneys on our desk here. They look delicious. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So you were one of those people saying, I like to cook. I'm going to experiment with this and I'm going to get it just right. First, tell us what your product is and how you came to be to, to commonwealth kitchen
4: okay so linda Go spice is um an artisanal line of chutneys relishes and fruit spreads and i also have a spice rub as well mm-hmm. and it came to be um i i love to cook and i I've, I've been cooking since i was like 10 or 12 and i would always cook for my friends and they would always say you need to start a catering business you you really do So I did back in 2006, and before Commonwealth Kitchen was in Dorchester, I started at Jamaica Plain. They had a space over in Jamaica Plain. It was New Esther Culinary Ventures that um, was run by the city. Then it was Crop Circle Kitchen. Now it's Commonwealth Kitchen. So I worked out of the JP site. So for my catering clients, I would make jerk chicken, but it can be a little spicy. Mm -hmm. I love it, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm And so I said, well, I need to make something to stave off the heat a little bit. So I would make a pineapple chutney. So at every event, everybody would be leaving with, like, all the jerk chicken would be gone. But this is a little bit more of the pineapple chutney. I was like, where can we get it? And I'm like, well, you know, I just make it. You just wrap this up or you could take it. I said, well, you know, please let us know. So... That was in 2006. So in 2008, when the economy just got really bad, I took some time off from the catering, and I developed a line of chutneys and relishes. The hardest part for me was writing the recipes because I do not write anything down. I just cook.
2: <laughs> oh. and, and Let me put you on pause and mention some of the different varieties you have here. Savory red pepper relish, smoked peach and cherry, ginger blueberry, And fennel and fig, which I know I do a wine segment, it's part of Under the Radar's offerings. Fennel and fig would be mm-hmm. so good with cheese and wines just oh, saying. Yes. So there's another use for your chutney. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And smoked strawberry. So anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so
4: I developed the whole line, but the hardest part like I said was doing the recipes because I don't I don't use recipes. So I've been trying to write a cookbook for like 12 years. It's just not <laughs> happening. And I just started making them and the recipes kept coming but I had to put make sure for me and my family because we have a lot of die bags in my family. My husband has hypertension. I wanted to make sure that my line was low in sugar, and low in sodium. So, that's what I worked on for 2 years with my recipes. And it's just they're just not condiments, you can also cook with them. Multi-purpose. Now, yes, they're mm-hmm. multi-purpose. So, right now I'm in the process of relaunching the catering part. Mm-hmm. So, okay. the catering, it's Lindigo Spice Catering as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And the food that I have is um, home style, more or less what I cook at home for my family. I have two adult sons and my husband, and they can eat. (laughs) So Um,
2: how did you get from, you know, not having a recipe, just cooking what you like, knowing that your mission was to make it low in sugar uh, to address all these dietary needs, how did Commonwealth Kitchen help you shape all of that and come to end up with these beautiful bottles with this delicious stuff? Oh, okay. well, <laughs> providing
4: the space. And mm-hmm. like
2: Jen said, it's a lot to build your own
4: kitchen. I, I researched it. I have, um, I live in Hyde Park now, the property I live on. I have a carriage house. I called the city. I said, well, you know, what about me? Is it possible for me to, you know, just make a commercial kitchen? And they said, not in this lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Right. Well, good try. So, uh, yeah, it was a good try.
4: So I said, okay, well, Um, So then they were in the process of building the bigger space on Quincy Street, and they just have made it so easy for me to make all of this. Like for the smoky peach and cherry and the smoked strawberry, I made some contraption at home because I wanted to smoke them myself. And using spices made it a little too bitter, so I woke my husband up at like four in the morning. I'm like, I'm gonna smoke the peaches. He said, Okay, you do that. I'm going back to sleep. But like Cassandra said, there's the executive chef there, Brad. He's just like, you know, there is an easier way to do that. Cause he, I came in one day with all of my stuff and my wood and everything. He was like, no, you got to use that. And what is it called? The combi-therm oven. The combi-therm oven. Okay. And they showed me how to use it. And now I can smoke, like, triple the amount of peaches and strawberries to do that. So, And just with all of the equipment that they have there and all the resources from workshops, uh, labeling requirements, different serve-safe classes Mm -hmm. and everything has helped me a lot.
2: If you're just tuning in, this is an encore segment of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and last year, I spoke with Jen Fagel, executive director of Commonwealth Kitchen, Cassandra Campbell, owner of Fresh Food Generation, and Celeste Croxon-Tate, owner of Lindigo Spice. We discussed Commonwealth Kitchen, the Dorchester-based food incubator that helped Cassandria and Celeste take their food businesses to the next level. So I want to speak about community because not only you've talked about the one of the resources being the actual equipment. Mm-hmm. I want all of you to address this, but part of the resources, not just the executive chef, but the other people that you're working next to, even if they're doing different products. Talk about what it means to be in a space that your logo says: cook, create, collaborate. So I'll start with you, Cassandra. What does that community space do for you? Mm-hmm.
0: It's amazing because we have the opportunity to collaborate with other vendors, and we absolutely do. So we run a small cafe within Dothouse Community Health Center. And in that cafe, we're able to offer the products of other vendors. So we work with Top Shelf Cookies, Third Cliff Bakery, folks who put a lot of time and effort into producing a quality product And when you bite into their stuff, you can taste the difference. So we're able to bring these quality products into a community health center. And people can taste the difference between something that comes off of a shelf from a convenience store and something that was freshly made down the street. So the collaboration to get all of our products out there is is really strong and, and has been a huge asset to being in this space. Celeste,
2: what is that community working in that community space with other vendors? How does that help you?
4: It's helped me a lot, just to piggyback off what Cassandra said, just working next to different companies. Mine is to the move. They're there as well. Two girls that make lactose-free ice cream. And so we have been toying with having my smoky peach and cherry go into one of their ice cream. So we're working on that. And then Heather from Top Shelf Cookies as well, we're trying to collaborate on her using something, one of my products and one of her cookies. So it's great. And whenever I can't accommodate, date someone that gives me a call for catering or something like that, I refer them to one of the other caterers or businesses. Say if they just want empanadas or something, I'll let them know about Cassandra. because they make an awesome empanada. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: okay, i got to remember that. that okay. mm-hmm. okay. goes well with the chutney. <laughs> <Yes. Okay. laughs>
2: uh, Jen, speak to that community space and how you've seen it through people who are there now and your graduates taking it out and with them as they have left and by themselves and you know, sure. started their own businesses.
3: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm always amazed and humbled at how hard these folks work to build these businesses. The food industry is, it's almost impossible, right? It's It's just so much. And they have to do so many things. They're the dishwasher. They're the cook. They're the cleaner. They're the orderer. They're doing the distribution. They're doing the delivery. They're managing their staff. And so having a place where they can do that together and watching people just sit at, we have this communal table where people are getting coffee and they're doing their paperwork. It's cool to see when people are talking to each other and just feeling like, because it's so hard to be able to talk with other people who have been through it with you and say, it's okay, pick yourself up, keep going, you're gonna figure it out. People who are like, each one teach one, so everybody's coaching each other. We have um, one of our baker's top shelf cookies is an incredible mentor for the other bakers. People are always surprised at this. Like, aren't they competitive? And in fact, she's sitting there looking at their pricing and saying, you're not making any money. Let me sit with you and do your books with you. And let me teach you so you make new mistakes. Don't make the mistakes I made. And I always say all the time, we have the privilege of being around all these amazing companies. And it's them talking to each other and mentoring each other that is the secret sauce that makes our facility work. Work the way it does.
2: Well, I hope people are getting that there is such a variety in the, the 50 businesses that are part of this shared kitchen. And part of that variety, um, one of your other vendors is Grace Connor, who's quite young. <laughs> um, she started making ice cream when yeah. she was eight. She's a Milton uh, Academy graduate. Her product is called Little G Ice Cream. I literally stumbled across this in Formaggio's yep. Kitchen in Cambridge. It's one of my neighborhood stores. and said, oh, I'll try this. And I don't even really like coffee ice cream. I told mm. her And I said, oh my God, this is so good. Anyway, I wanted Grace to weigh in on what she thought being a part of a community space is, how it's helped her. And now she's 18, by the way. So this is Grace Connor of Little G Ice Cream. We talked to her on site at Commonwealth Kitchen.
0: I'd say the most helpful part is that everyone is going through something similar, but they're all kind of different. So someone will be doing cookies, someone will be doing sauces, but they're still trying to, you know, get in stores and face those challenges that you are, and everyone's also kind of at different points in their business. So it's good to talk to people who are ahead of you and help people who are behind you and just see this big trajectory that everyone's kind of on together.
2: That was Grace Connor. She's 18 now. Her product is Little G Ice Cream, which is ridiculously good, (laughs) Um, she uh, began one of her sentences to me was when I was a kid. I said, um, you're still a kid. But my point (laughs) is that there is so much difference and variety there in the specialty products. And I wanted Jen for you to talk about one of the opportunities you had recently in this pop-up out at the street in Chestnut Hill. Oh yeah. If people know Chestnut Hill out where the Superlux Theater is and Mm -hmm. there's something called the street where there's a lot of different communities, there was a pop-up. for two months, and a lot of your products were featured. Absolutely. Yeah,
3: Yeah, so it was an amazing opportunity. So right on Route 9 in Chestnut Hill, the developer, WS Development, said, we have a space that's going to sit there. What do you want to do? And we looked at our companies and said – we got to get their stuff out there, and so the plan really was to f- highlight one of our food trucks every month with doing like hot food. So we had our Jamaicans doing amazing Jamaican Me Hungry, you know, all their amazing <laughs> plates. But then we were able to feature all of this wonderful pantry items so that you could come and you could just taste the product. One of our companies, Nola Salsa, says all the time the thing I need to do is get this food in your mouth because if it's in your mouth, you will buy it again. (laughs) And so what we loved, what she was exactly right, was then when we put all these products out and people had a chance to taste it and understand what folks are doing, that it was magic. And so the number of people who were buying products was way more than we thought when we had the pop up there. And it's another example of what's happening in food where people are looking for something interesting and special and where they can learn who made it and where it came from. And people were so surprised at how much food was being made in Dorchester. It was an amazing opportunity. We look forward to doing additional pop-ups again because we feel like it helps to get our company's message out there and for people to learn about all the amazing things happening
2: in our kitchen. Come to Cambridge. (laughs) I want to pop up in Cambridge. (laughs) Okay. Um, I want to mention some of your other companies that you mentioned, Nola's Fresh Salsa, then there's Baja Taco Truck. We mentioned ice cream, cold brew coffee, some of your graduates, Alex's ugly sauce. I've had that sauce. I love <laughs> hot sauce. It's so good if you yep. like hot sauce. Yep. And batch yep. ice cream. I've tried them too and they're they're very good. So there's a real variety of what you can do. All right. So what happens when you graduate? Mm-hmm. How do you know when it's time to leave the nest and <laughs> get out there? Um, Cassandra, are you feeling that or Celeste are you feeling that or I
0: don't know how you So deficit. one thing <laughs> I've learned at being at Commonwealth Kitchen is how hard it is to run a kitchen. Mm. Um, there's <laughs> amen. <laughs> there, there's a lot of things to think about. That being in that shared space, I don't have to worry about if um, an equipment breaks down. Jen's gonna get it fixed. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Uh-huh. So I, as a business, I don't think that we're there yet. But I think that we are on that trajectory and being in a space where we can see how a kitchen is properly run, I think, prepares us to eventually have our own space in the long run other than going out directly and buying our own space and end up failing because you just don't know what you don't know.
2: And even you fail, even though it's a great idea and you have a good product. Celeste, how would you answer that?
4: Yeah, so I don't think I'm there yet because I have a lot more flavors that I want to introduce. (laughs) And like I said, I just relaunched the catering aspect. So I'm just trying to build clientele with that and just get the product out there in more stores. Um, Everything's available on my website, but just trying to... Get it out there and in more stores. Opening a restaurant, I don't know. I've been toying with it, but it's hard running the kitchen. (laughs) So, um, just even going in there and you know working when it's packed. It's been full where you couldn't even get in the doorway. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mm -hmm. but it just works. So I don't think I'm there yet to graduate, but I will be a graduate soon.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yes, absolutely, Jen. When we were on site talking with you, one of the things that is the advantage to what the Celeste and the Cassandrias are doing is that they are fully focusing on one thing. So when uh, Celeste talks about artisanal, that's what we mean, that your product is so, so special that it is elevated to a a different space. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're producing there. So right. you can then go in any space. You can uh, be a part of a food truck that is accessible to people who've never had that. And you can also end up in Formaggio's Kitchen, <laughs> exactly. you know, which is a very high-end, mm-hmm. s- small uh, grocery store. So sure. let's talk about that a little bit, about what that means.
3: Yeah. So the amazing thing when you come into the kitchen is people come in with this passion. And you, I mean, you heard Celeste. How many years you work on your product? Three, four years yeah. to come mm-hmm. up with a recipe? Yeah it better be damn good, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you spent that much time on it. Mm -hmm. And for most of our companies that are making a product, that's what they're doing. They have this passion to do that one or two things. And you sort of think, oh, sure, it's chutney, but then you taste it mm-hmm. and the layers of the flavor and the uh-huh. depth and the and you understand the passion that goes behind it. And so we feel like part of our work is trying to help tell their story and how to get them into the market. So how do we help them get into the formaggios of the world? And little G, we just got her into Target, if you mm, can believe that. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Crazy. Cause we are mm. trying to figure out. How do we use the platform that we have and the resources to help get their story out? They still have to be the entrepreneur and go sell their product, but where what's the trajectory? And this question about the graduation, if you think about our companies, there's kind of two kinds of companies we have. There are the folks like Cassandra who are caterers and their food trucks, and usually their goal is a restaurant, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So people have come out of our kitchen, Roxy's Grilled Cheese and Clover Food Lab and Down Home Delivery, right? They started with doing one thing, they got into a restaurant because retail is really the right place. Mm-hmm. You think about what Celeste is doing with her product right? Chutney is wonderful. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily eat an entire thing of chutney every day. Maybe Celeste does, Mm -hmm. or maybe she'll convince us we should. (laughs) Yes. Um, So it's a much steeper climb to get to that next level. And so for those companies that are making products, in many cases, the next step for them is to find somebody what's called a co-packer to manufacture it for them. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of businesses get stuck is because the traditional way of doing this is you'd have somebody make your Chutney for you, mm-hmm. and they don't have the passion that you do. They don't care the same way, and they want to do it in mass production. Mm-hmm. And so, there's still a, a gap in the marketplace for companies as they grow. So, we actually, about a year and a half ago, started doing our own contract manufacturing in small batches, okay. so that we could help these companies get to that next level. So, like Anola Salsa, when she's now in a hundred stores, and she's in Star Market and Whole Foods, and she's got a distributor, and she's still making it herself. This is a terrible business model, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Because it's still only one day a week of production. we got to get her out of the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so we have this model where we said, why don't we take that over for you? You run out and sell your product and do more stuff because that's what you know how to do. Nobody but Celeste can tell the story of her product. Mm -hmm. But if we understand what she wants and can be in partnership with her, we can make that. Not as well as she can, but pretty darn good. And so what we see is this two-path trajectory. For some people, they're going into retail. In other places, we are helping them move their contract processing to the next level so that eventually they
2: can be like McRae's Candies where they open up their own facility in Hyde Park. And also just to have it in different uh, spaces, because I ran across some of the Commonwealth Kitchen products at the Boston Public Market, which I love, Uh uh, because the focus is only on Massachusetts-made products. So that's a ready place for all of Uh you to certainly sell your products or test them out with the audiences there because anybody that comes there knows everything made here was made in Massachusetts. That's right. So I've run across a lot of great stuff, you know, from your kitchen. In fact, I think that's made me become more aware of it by yeah. ending up there and tasting a few products from there.
3: And people are surprised mm-hmm. at the stuff that we make that's there. So, for example, Taza Chocolate is there. Mm-hmm. We make the churros for them, which mm-hmm. people are often surprised at. Mm-hmm. So, because this is the reality of how food works is that other people often make people's food. But part of the work we're doing now now with folks like Celeste and Little G is where else could we help people learn about and get access to the market. So mm-hmm. where is the Amazon relationship? We're in a conversation right now about can we get into Logan Airport because they're great gifts to people to take with them. Like, where else can we help our companies get access? Um, we're in this interesting conversation right now with Harvard University. You think about Harvard, they have a dining service and they have catering and they have retail. Yeah. So that chutney, that's beautiful for all three of those opportunities. So if we can make that relationship, then there's a way where we can help these companies get to that next level, start to build their own connections, and continue to grow the business.
2: If you're just tuning in, this is an encore presentation of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Last summer, I was joined by Jen Fagel, Cassandra Campbell, and Celeste Croxon-Tate. We talked about the food incubator, Commonwealth Kitchen in Dorchester. Now, one thing, Jen Fagel, I want you to explain, because I, I read someplace where you said, you're not an accelerator; you're an incubator, and I wonder if you could explain the difference.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny that you say that because not only are we not an accelerator, we keep saying we're not really an incubator either anymore. <laughs> okay, so right. we don't know what the heck we
2: are. Right. So if you can you're help us, an identity crisis. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So if you
3: can help us figure that, that would be great. <laughs> okay. But conceptually, accelerators are very short term. It's somebody stepping on the gas with you with a business. You think about this in the tech side, right? We're going to be in business with you. We're going to invest. Money in you, we're going to push you from an idea into a product, right? And incubators are usually earlier than that, where you have an idea, you're just trying to figure it out. And in both cases, usually these are short term, you're there for a little while, and then they kick you out of the nest, it's time to go. And we're neither of those things. Mm -hmm. You think about it, right? Like Celeste has been with us for what, four years? Mm -hmm. Cassandra has been with us for three or four years. They'll probably be with us longer. And really, it's a partnership. Yes. So we keep trying to think about that the model is much more like what equity investors do. You think about an mm-hmm. equity investor in mm-hmm. a in a tech company, and they have a board, and the board are advisors and their coaches, and they're giving them access to market, and they're connecting them with manufacturing, and they're connecting them with funding. And in many ways, that's what we're doing for the companies. So... I don't know what this is, but it's working. <laughs> but,
2: but, well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I think it's working. Hopefully. Um, I just wanted to, you know, highlight some of your funders because um, mm-hmm. one of them in particular, Cummings Foundation, mm-hmm. um, you were the recipient one of five here locally to get 500000 for them. So that is a huge vote of confidence Enormous. Uh, that they believe that this is uh, the way to go and yes. um, this is an economic development plan that's different and delicious. So I want to go back to uh, our entrepreneur here and ask you the question I love to ask people who are starting businesses or are passionate. What excites you about this and what keeps you going as you're coming into your own Cassandria?
0: Honestly my employees they are awesome they work really hard. They love being in a shared kitchen space. Um, They love talking to the other businesses there they care about each other and so you know when times get hard I always think about them. You know, I have people that I can go into work and are just as excited to do the work as I am. Well, and also we should just to underscore that you're hiring people locally. So it's not
2: just an opportunity for you. It's actually an opportunity for many other people as well. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's important. All right, Celeste, <laughs> what's what excites you about this? I love the food.
4: I love food. I do. I love the food aspect of it. I love creating recipes. I love sharing my food with people. I love to see people eat my food. Mm. And whenever I can help someone, have one of the students from the Kroc Center, which I was hooked up with via the kitchen, come in and help me, you know, create my food and just the environment. It's a great environment. The people there are awesome. Um, I have friends that come in and help me. They're working for food now.
2: (laughs) Okay, I hear you. Okay, okay. Okay, it's kind of an in-kind contribution. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) But
4: as I grow, I do intend on um, hiring more people from the community. But for me, it's, it's all about the food. And, you know, I my regular job I, I'm a police officer so I this is how I decompress. Right, right. <laughs> so, so You I can't be
2: spicy on the job. You right. have to be spicy well, off the job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All
4: right, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yes, Linda goes spice. We're full of flavor with a spicy attitude.
2: <laughs> I did want to mention that you that you named your spice in honor of your sister. Uh, I yes, did. Yes. My older
4: sister Rachel Lynn, she passed away in eighty three. She was twenty. She was a victim of domestic violence. And I said, this, so this whole company is about her and, and honoring her. And I said, that the indigo part comes from me wanting to name a little my little girl. If I ever had a little girl, I would name her indigo. Okay. But I have boys. <laughs> so when I was thinking of a name for my catering company in 2006, my son Victor walked by me with like a bowl of cereal. He's like, I had all these stickies on the table with all these names and combinations. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to think of a name for the company. He was like. He just looked. He said, "Just say Linda Go," and he walked away. Oh,
5: and so it's stuck. Yes,
4: yes, yes. And he, you know, he doesn't remember that. Yeah, yeah. But I said that that's where the name came from. So yes, this is paying homage to my to my sister because we were very close, and I I'm sure she would be very proud of me. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, the whole venture, I have to say, is exciting. It's certainly, as I said, delicious. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting just to walk through your facility. I enjoyed it. Yeah, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing all of you graduates and mm-hmm. new coming in and uh, tasting new products. So thank you all for joining me. Awesome. Thank, you. thank you so much for having thank us. You. What fun. Jen Fagel is the executive director of Commonwealth Kitchen in Dorchester. Cassandra Campbell is the owner of Fresh Food Generation, and Celeste Croxon Tate is the owner of Lindigo Spice. They spoke with us back in August of 2017. Since then, Commonwealth Kitchen opened the Dining Car, a brick and mortar takeout window in Kendall Square. The dining car features members of the incubation community on a rotating basis to give aspiring food business professionals a chance to test their menus and experience running a physical business. Coming up, they say there is no greater pain than that suffered by a parent who has lost a child. Pain already unbearable made worse when the loss is 100% preventable. Allison Lowell lost her only child when a driver took seconds to glance down at his phone. Now she's part of the movement to pass a law which would mandate hands-free driving. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. ¶¶ I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, That's Creole for something extra. This December, state public safety officials launched an informational campaign focused on the dangers of driving under the influence of alcohol, weed, or other drugs. It's the first driving safety campaign since recreational marijuana became legal in Massachusetts. It's accompanied by an increased police effort to enforce impaired driving rules on the road this holiday season. But substance abuse isn't the only danger to keep in mind while traveling to and from home during the holidays. About one in four car accidents in the U.S. is caused by texting and driving. And currently, there is no law in Massachusetts requiring the use of hands-free cell phone technology while driving. In July, we spoke with Allison Lowell, who lost her twenty year old daughter, Gabriella, in June, when a driver took his eyes off the road to glance at his phone. But in the midst of her grief, she chose to speak before the state's lawmakers in favor of legislation which would require drivers to use hands-free technology for their cell phones. Similar laws are already in place in 16 other states. But as it stands, a bill requiring hands-free devices while driving is stuck in the Statehouse House Ways and Means Committee. To discuss the importance of this kind of legislation, I was joined by Emily Stein, president of Safe Roads Alliance, who is heading the organized effort to push the bill through. I was also joined by Allison Lowell, who is dealing with the recent death of her daughter, Gabriella, who was killed by a driver using his cell phone. Allison, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I know how hard it is for you to talk about it, and I very much appreciate it. So let me begin by asking you about who Gabriella was. Just tell us a little bit about Gabriella.
1: Um, okay. Um, my daughter was vibrant. She laughed a lot. She always had a smile on her face that was extremely contagious. Never was in a bad mood, and if she happened to be in one, it would turn right around. She loved to dance, she was aspiring to be a vet. That was her goal in her life. She loved animals. Um, She was very family oriented. Her and I were very close. And
2: she was a student, right?
1: Yes. Yes, she was. She was just 20.
2: And she's your only child.
1: Yep. My only child.
2: So as painful as it is, would you tell us what happened as you understand it? You weren't there, but this is what the details are from the police.
1: Okay, um, my daughter was coming home from McDonald's on Grafton Street in Worcester. We live very close to McDonald's. So she was coming home, it was around 8.50, and she stopped across the street. She looked both ways. One line of traffic stopped. She was walking across. He came barreling down Grafton Street and hit her. And she died on impact, two minutes away from home. And the reason is because he was texting and driving. He wasn't just looking down. He was texting and driving.
2: What did you think when you heard what he was doing? I mean, that this was the cause of her death.
1: Anger. Anger, anger, anger. I can't even just beyond that, beyond hurt. And so upset that he didn't have any respect for anybody else's lives because that was a choice. Picking up his phone was a choice. This wasn't an accident. It was a choice.
2: What do you say to people who say, it's just a couple seconds. You know, I can look down and keep driving.
1: It's not a couple seconds. I lost my daughter within one second of him looking at his phone. One second matters. A half a second matters. And it's something that needs to stop.
2: Well, Emily Stein is here, president of Safe Roads Alliance, and she's been pushing very, very hard to get this bill through this year. Emily, uh, talk about what's been many, many years of effort to get to this point.
6: Yeah, it, it's, um, I don't know, Kelly. I, I really thought that this was a win, that this was going to be a solid win. And I was sharing with every advocate who's been working alongside us, every family member who's been working alongside us, who was who just putting their all into this, that we've got this. Um, and I think the hard part with legislation is you, you think
2: you're doing everything right
6: and then you're still getting let down. Um, and
2: this is a story, the one that Allison told about her daughter Gabriella's tragic death. You know this very well, personally.
6: Yeah, I'm in tears. I'm so sorry. Um, Thank you. and I lost my dad, um, now seven years ago and it was you know the worst thing that has ever happened to me. But um, meeting other families who have lost a child and now hearing your story, it's just devastating. And as a mother of, of two kids, this is you know something I think about every day because as soon as you see how vulnerable we are um, out there as, as any type of road user, a pedestrian, a cyclist, a driver, you, you realize how this can happen. To anybody, and it can happen, you know, to, to you again. Because if somebody's not looking at the road, they're not discriminating um, against against your your age, your race, your class, where you are, what time of day you're driving. If people aren't looking at the road, they're not driving.
2: One of the things that's um, maybe it's always been there, but it seems more intense this year. There are many groups and organizations in a strong coalition. They've been to the State House protesting, they've been talking to the legislatures. I mean, it's coming from a, a lot of sectors. It's not just one group of people pushing for this. right right. And I, I, I believe I've been working on this for the past five
6: years. I was trying to look back at my emails to see how many you know how many times have I emailed uh, our legislators. And um, each year I learn something new and each year it gets a little further. Um, and the, the, the fact that racial profiling has been, Um, A front and center concern for this many years, Um, I wonder how many more years is it going to take because this this is what's getting in the way of
2: it again. Um, And we should explain, uh, Representative Byron Rushing and Representative uh, Jeffrey Sanchez have been pretty strong about uh, concern that any police stops uh, that's called primary enforcement might increase racial profiling. I think anybody listening can knows all the stories about police stopping folks around the way, uh, some sometimes improperly, uh, and it leads to something else. So what they're concerned about is that a bill that puts into place. Um, legitimate stops by the police doesn't also get tangled up with uh, racial profiling. We should say at this moment, according to legislative aide Carolyn Sherrod for Representative Byron Rushing, he is prepared to uh, change to uh, accept a bill which includes data collection on racial profiling. That means that there's a system by way they can collect certain data and then it can be reviewed. Um, He believes that that's a way to go forward, and he's prepared to do that. If the bill has that language, he will support it. If it doesn't have it, he will add an amendment. But either way, he's prepared to support it. That is not yet true of Representative Jeffrey Sanchez. Um, As far as we know, he still has some issues with the language that could change, but that's where we are today. And the reason that's important, um, more than just that's a block for the bill, is he's head of the Ways and Means Committee, which has a great amount of influence about what bill comes to the floor. Yeah.
6: Right. And we've tried to work Mm -hmm. with him several times and meet with his his staff and representative. Rushing has been, um, you know, helpful and and supportive, which we're grateful for. But I think, um, you know, we don't want the police to be profiling. We support data collection. I've been on the phone with the chiefs of um, chiefs of many organizations, the Mass Chiefs of Police Association, the Mass Major Cities. Um, chiefs association and they're in support of the bill but the problem seems to be that when the drafted when they drafted the language on data collection they didn't consult with the police
5: hmm. and
6: for something that affects their day-to-day operation absolutely they need that's to. important yes that's yes. like that is very important and so now we're at the 11th hour and the police are in support of the bill but they still want to see changes in the language on data collection. You know, their, their quote was, we absolutely support hands-free. We're not against data collection, but we need to tighten up the language or we need to add in certain components so that when the data is analyzed, there's a standard to which mm. it's compared
2: I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to an encore segment of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. In July, I spoke with Emily Stein of Safe Roads Alliance and Allison Lowell, the mother of one of the most recent Massachusetts victims of a cell phone driver. We discussed their effort to push through legislation banning the use of handheld cell phones while driving in Massachusetts. All right, so aside from... These language issues, which if the legislators wanted to get it together, they have put language together rapidly and, you know, got it in place now that there has been conversation with the police. Is there anybody else or any other reason for lawmakers at this point to not be in favor? Do you have enough uh, groundswell of support uh, beyond this issue, which is still very important. I'm just asking in general beyond that.
6: Yeah, I believe if, if Speaker DeLeo prioritizes this issue and brings the bill to a vote that it would pass very clearly in this in the House.
2: Over, do you think overwhelmingly?
6: I'm not sure about overwhelmingly. Mm. And the reason I say that is not for because people are against it. We have very few people coming out against it. Um, personally, I've heard nobody have concerns. But what is very clear is that there are still some members of the House who are either choosing to not... Want to learn about it, mm. or they have other priorities, which is understandable. There are a lot of issues in, in this state house, but when we've been going around to the state house to speak with certain reps and chairmen of, of committees where the bill has been stuck, either currently or in the past, it's just apparent that these elected officials are either you know they're not learning about it, they're they're uninformed about it, um, they're still quoting um, concerns about the economic barriers. Um, to hands-free devices or Bluetooth. But those were arguments in 2009. A lot of technology has advanced. Um, so we don't have to have brand-new cars to have Bluetooth. We don't have to spend
2: $100 on a, another hands-free device. Uh, Allison, I hear you agreeing uh, with uh, Emily on this point. Uh, please add more.
1: I, I totally agree with her. Um, I just saw a commercial yesterday actually on TV for a new car that's coming out on the screen in the car the text messages come across that screen
2: yeah that's if scary. that's
1: not distracting i don't know mm-hmm. what is it's <laughs> like it's like you're looking at your ipad or phone but it's like it's higher up but you're still being distracted by that
2: exactly um, well allison I, I, can, I can tell you that the last time emily was on um and we had a discussion about this i put Uh, An app on my phone is just an app, uh, which shuts off all notification in the car. So I don't get anything. I have an ability, if I'm a passenger, to say I'm a passenger and then can receive them. But otherwise, and, you know, it it hasn't made any, you know, I don't know what people are saying. They're going to miss something or whatever. You know, you get a notification that I'm driving or whatever, and life goes on. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the point, right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Nothing is that important where you are risking not only your life, but killing somebody. Killing somebody who is innocent and is just going about their way just because you're selfish and you pick up your phone. There's nothing that important. Nothing. And I saw the text messages that this kid sent. (laughs) They weren't of an important nature whatsoever.
2: Allison, do you think, um, you know, every time... A tragedy like this happens. Some people get more informed um, because there's a face uh, to the statistics, yeah. which Emily has lots of statistics about stuff happening, and of course her own personal story. I wonder, yeah. are you hearing from people now saying, "Oh my God, I, I, I and I can assure you, I'm not going to be, you know, using my cell phone in the car as a result of what happened to your daughter."
1: I have had an outpouring of people. Um, Friends of mine, friends of friends. Um, I'm actually meeting on Wednesday with Senator Michael Moy, Michael Moore, excuse me, to speak about this exact topic, mm-hmm. because something needs to be done, and I need to start somewhere because I can't let my daughter's death be in vain.
2: And what, where, what area does he represent, Senator Michael Moore?
1: Um, Worcester.
2: Worcester, which is where the incident took place. Yes. Was he aware before you contacted him of what had happened?
1: Yeah he contacted me first.
2: Good 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 So, so there's any little
1: bit will help uh, just hearing my voice will yeah. help
2: <laughs> Well absolutely you know um, I, Emily there's a really scary statistic you have about how many times a day someone um, is killed by uh, this the absence of just technology can you share that?
6: The number we're working on is nine people a day are killed because of distracted driving. And that's nationwide. But those are the deaths that we know about. So that number is as low as, you know, that's a very low number. Um, The National Safety Council and um, advocates across the country know that it it is a lot higher. If we had better um, investigation around distracted driving, better technology to determine phone use, um Then that number would be significantly higher,
2: Emily. We have a little bit more of, of uh a week or so you know before the end of the legislative session, you know business days um What can you say to those um senators and uh representatives who again can change language at the last minute? We've seen that um so that people can get on board
6: i i I think they they need to to wake up um I really think that this can't be about politics anymore. Um, this can't be about the House versus the Senate. This is a public health issue. This is a public safety issue. And you know, for Gabriella and I, for, for Gabriella, for for Katie, for Emma, for Merritt, all these people we have lost. Um, this is personal, but it also is public health and public safety of everybody in this state. And for our legislators to not pay attention to that. This is something that they can go home to their constituents and say, I got this done. I got this done for you. And I got this done for people, um, across the state because this was important and they should feel proud about that. Um, and if they don't, I have to say they're not doing their job. Um, 80% of Massachusetts voters support a hands-free law and, You know, they're not listening, and that's my main thing is, you know, Speaker DeLeo, he needs to start listening, and he needs to start speaking. He is not out front on road safety issues, and he needs to be, because we're going to keep losing people every single year, and
2: that's on their hands. Mm -hmm. And one more question, Emily. If this bill, for some reason, does not pass, what happens?
6: So I just sent out an email to every member of the House urging them to pass it, um, showing them the coverage we got from the rally we had last week, um, and saying if 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 you don't get this done this session, then then I started filling out paperwork for um, to get this on the ballot, because mm-hmm. if the legislature can't get it done, and for the past ten years we've been trying to get a hands-free bill passed, and if if it's not done in ten years, then You know, we we don't need to rely on them. It's the people. We need to let the people speak. And if this is on the ballot, I am positive this will pass.
1: Allison, please
2: respond. Yes.
1: She is 100% absolutely right. If it was up to the American people, people in our area, to vote on this in an election, they would totally vote for it. And I think, in my heart, and I could be a little bitter, if any one of those individuals in the house lost a child or a family member that bill would be passed exactly. it's not affecting them mm-hmm. so they're not caring enough that's how i feel about it they're it's not affecting their everyday life they didn't lose somebody they're not walking around without their mother their father their child
6: mm-hmm. the, have i've heard that excuse in the house by a member of leadership and I emailed him in the middle of the night saying this is keeping me up at night because we can't wait until somebody in your state house loses a loved one. Like yeah. why? You haven't Why it in the power. is their
1: lives more important than my daughter's life or your father's life? Right? <laughs> why would why would it get past i I just I'm baffled. I I'm angry and I'm just so baffled by this makes not one iota of sense why they're dragging their feet on passing this.
2: And this is an opportunity where you can use actually technology for good. I mean, there's always consequences on the use of technology, but here's an opportunity where it it works in support of something that's positive. I thank both of you for joining me, and I hope your conversation goes well with the Senator Allison. We'll all be Thinking of you and holding good thoughts for you as you start a very painful uh, grief journey. And um, thank you for sharing with us who Gabriella was.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: And thank you for joining me, Emily. Thanks, Kelly. Emily Stein is president of Safe Roads Alliance, advocating for passage of a bill that bans the use of handheld cell phones while driving. Alison Lowell is the mother of Gabriella Lowell, who in June was struck and killed by a driver on his cell phone. I spoke with him in early July. Since our conversation, a bill prohibiting the use of handheld cell phones has yet to pass in the Massachusetts House. That's it for this encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugertz. Francisca Monahan, Vakanda Loingapai, and Andrea Aswahe produced this show. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.